0: The human author of this book, Peter, is writing to a group of churches spread throughout northern Asia Minor. It's uh, an area of about 130,000 square miles. The land area about the size of California. Throughout the rugged topography, churches dot the landscape. These churches are all in the same geographical area, but they are vastly different. There are larger churches and smaller churches. Churches that are heavy Jewish with some Gentiles and then some heavy Gentile churches with some Jews. There are churches in highly populated areas and churches in lowly populated areas. In other words, there are city churches and country churches. There are no two churches that have the exact same makeup the exact same dynamics, or the exact same challenges. Yet Peter gives this diverse group of churches the exact same instruction. Under the inspiration of God, we understand that Peter didn't merely write for the health of those churches. This is also for the health of our church. What Peter longed to see in those churches is what we should long to see in our church. I would be leery I would be leery of agencies or seminaries or networks that say, we specialize in instructing urban church plans or country revitalizations or we specialize in metropolitan areas or inner cities or or farmlands. God through Peter says, every church needs the same instruction, the same roadmap, the same strategic plan. All healthy churches do these things. Here's how Peter breaks it down. He says, there's healthy church relationships look like this. That's verse 22. Healthy church relationships look like this. Healthy churches do this with the word of God. That's verse 23 through 25. Then we're circling back around. Healthy church relationships look like this. Chapter 2, verse 1. Healthy churches do this with the word of God. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. You you can easily pick out Peter's pattern, his back and forth, his ABAB. Peter's instructions for church health are simple. People and a Bible. Christian people and a Christian Bible. Now let's dig further into this pattern and pull out four instructions for a healthy church. Four instructions for a healthy church. First, a healthy church finds ways to show love to one another. I'm Using the language of scripture with that one another. A healthy church finds ways to show love to one another. Notice verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now wait a minute. It seems like Peter is suggesting that believers are the ultimate agent in their salvation. The believer is the one who is purifying his soul. One popular paraphrase of this verse even says, now that you've cleaned up your life. Now, we know that 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 is spiritually impossible and biblically inconsistent. So we must dig deeper. Peter uses purified in the perfect tense, which describes a past transaction, a completed state. Purified is speaking of conversion, salvation. This is what happens in the new birth. The obedience to the truth refers to faith in the gospel. The truth here is not abstract or general. For those of you NBA fans, the truth is not Paul Pierce. The truth is the gospel. And the closest parallel to 1 Peter 1.22 is Galatians 5.7, where Paul asks the Galatians, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying The truth. In the context of Galatians 5, in the entire letter to the Galatians, the truth means the gospel. Obeying the truth is another way of saying that you have attentively listened to the gospel and then submitted to its commands to repent and follow Christ. Now, I'll give you not a very common way to refer to salvation, but it is a way. It's the way that Peter uses here. Churches He say, "Churches, your souls were purified by submitting to the claims of Christ. You've been obedient to the gospel and its claims, verse 22, for a sincere brotherly love. You, you can summarize everything before the word for as saved. You, you've been saved. What's the next word? You've been saved for. Peter is grounding the call to love. In their conversion, now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, love. If you have obeyed the summons of the gospel, then your life should be marked by a sincere, brotherly love. One of the purposes for which these people were converted was to love the brethren. Two descriptions of this love, sincere and brotherly. You have to have a sincere love of others in the congregation. That's a love that's not determined by beauty or desirability. That's a genuine desire to treasure and value those with whom you worship with on Sundays. It's a sincere love, but it's also a brotherly love. It's in the Greek, the word phileo, where we get our word Philadelphia. It's why they call Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You are to have a brotherly love for those in the church. Not a calculating love, but a natural love. Acting with with no thought of gaining something in return. When's the last time you've done something for someone in this church without expecting anything in return? When's the last time you've gone out of your way to love and treasure someone in this local assembly? And it was so natural to you that you didn't even have to think about it. John R. Stott said, Christian love is born as Christians are born. It's natural. Jesus spoke about how we would have a love for other Christians when we become a Christian. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You have this brotherly love because you belong to a family. And this family is going to last forever. The 4th century Roman emperor, Julian the apostate, once remarked, that Jesus had successfully implanted in the Christians the belief that they were related. Verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verses 22 through 25 are actually one sentence in the Greek, but the entire sentence is governed by one verb. You might want to underline the single imperative, the command, love one another. Love one another earnestly. It's a word that means to stretch out. It means to stretch out to the furthest limit your arms will allow. Are you loving one another with a stretched out love? Are you stretched out in showing your love to individuals within this church? This stretched out sincere love comes from a pure heart. A sincere deep affectionate heart and evidently it wasn't always the easiest thing for these churches for these church members to whom Paul writes to love other church members one of the painful facts of life is that the people of God do not always get along with each other you would think that those who walk in hope and holiness would also be able to walk in harmony but that's not always the case I want to give you three challenges built off of this command in verse twenty. 2 to love one another earnestly. Three challenges. Challenge number 1. Love church members who are different than you. Love church members who are different than you. Stephen Davey pointed out that we often overlook the fact that when Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, that Jesus didn't first deliver that to the church in Jerusalem that numbered in the thousands fairly quickly. That would have been easier. It's easier to be told by Jesus to love 3,000 people than to love a handful of people. When Jesus delivered that command, he was sitting in the upper room, only hours away from his crucifixion, and he was looking into the eyes of 11 disciples. Jesus was effectively saying, Peter, I know you and John are, have totally different personalities. He's a feeler, and you're a man of action. You wear overalls. He has a man bun. (laughs) He wants to listen. You want to talk. John, I I know you think about things. I know you think about words before you ever speak them. But Peter, he thinks while he speaks. I know you two are totally different, but love each other. Andrew, I I know how quick you are and, and daring and you rarely stop to ask questions. But Thomas over here is going to need facts and assurances. And he's a bit slower to take a step. So you two need to love each other. Simon the Zealot, I I know you hated the Roman overlords. And and any Jew who betrayed Israel was your deeply felt enemy. But there's Matthew across the room who used to work for Rome as a tax collector in order to defraud his, his own Jewish countrymen. All of your lives you've been on the opposite side of the fence. But now you two need to deeply and without hesitation love one another. Jesus only commands what he supplies. He has given you the ability to show supernatural love to each other. So do it. I know you will not let your kids read Harry Potter because you think it came from the pit of hell. But the guy in the seat in front of you thinks Harry Potter is a book of the Bible. And he was actually smoking pot yesterday when someone in our church led him to Christ. So love each other. How are you specifically going to love someone so different than you in the church this week? Challenge number one, love church members who are different than you. Challenge number two, love church members because you value church unity. Peter is writing and he's aiming for healthy Christian churches in northern Asia Minor. And there were many factors going on in the culture that was working against church unity. The churches receiving this letter were filled with both Jews and Gentiles. I mean, you think we have divisions today in Christendom? It's nothing like the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. They hated each other. Uh, hey, hey, Jewish man, why did God invent Gentiles? Because hell needs kindling. It was a common belief and reply to this day. If a Gentile and a Jew got married, the Jews would have a funeral for them because they were now dead to the family. The culture around these churches, we still trying to drive a wedge between them. Well, you're this and you're that. You're the oppressive group and you're the oppressed group. Salvation doesn't change that. The gospel doesn't change that. You two aren't the same. You two can't love each other. It's impossible. But the world cannot tear apart what God has brought together. There is a Christian unity that doesn't make sense to the world. The gospel views people through different lenses. So that's outside trying to ruin the unity of the inside, but there are also times when the inside attempts to ruin the unity of the inside. I have more church fight stories than you can believe. We've got quite a few pastors in here today. They could tell you a lot of them as well. I'll spare you the details, but I will say this. Internal fighting in a church brings a reproach to the name of Christ. On the flip side, unity within the church brings a a sweet aroma to the name of Christ. Remember Caesar Hadrian, emperor of Rome around 117? He sent a spy to check out this rapidly growing group of people called Christians. And his sleuthing brought back this report. Behold, they love one another. Now behold, they bicker with one another. Now behold, they fight with one another. Behold how they love one another. In what ways do you find it hardest to love your church? What would happen if you saw those challenges as opportunities to love well rather than excuses not to bother? By the way, some of you aren't Christians, and this is actually what you contribute to your lack of faith. Well, I saw some church unity, disunity, Kyle, some church fighting, and it scarred me. That's why I'm not a Christian. One, I'm sorry that happened to you. Two, you're wrong. You're not a Christian because you refuse to repent and submit your life to Jesus Christ and his authority. So let's just stop playing games. You can't blame your lack of belief on anyone or any church disunity. You can only blame that on yourself. Challenge number one, love church members who are different than you. Challenge number two, love church members because you value church unity. Challenge number three, love church members because you both have the same father. R.C. Sproul used to speak about this pastor in Mississippi who would say, we stick with the stuck." we stick with the stuck by which he meant that family trumps everything we stick together because we are family we we are to have that same kind of fervent love not for our biological families but for our spiritual family our faith family first a healthy church finds ways to show love to one another secondly a healthy church possesses a correct view of the bible Verse 23, since you have been born again, now let's stop here for context, love other Christians in the assembly since you have been born again. Love other Christians since you've been born again. See Peter digging and rooting the command in your salvation (laughs) once again. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This is the saving seed of the gospel. We have supernatural love in verse 22. We have supernatural seed in verse 23. Now let's compare God's seed with first human seed and then grass seed. With human reproduction, going back to uh, high school here. With human reproduction, there are millions of seeds released from the male. Even though it only takes one seed to fertilize an egg. And it may seem like a waste, but in the economy of God, it is not. Because God knows how weak the human seed is. It is corruptible and perishable. That's mortal seed. God speaks of immortal seed. That's perishable seed. God speaks of imperishable seed. So human seed. Look look at grass seed. Verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of God is not like grass or flowers. They flourish for a moment and and give a joy that lasts for a moment. It's splendid for a season, but it's short-lived. The readers knew well the grass in the Middle Eastern countryside. They saw it come and go. Peter is hammering away at the permanence of God's word. Church, this is what I've been preaching to you. (laughs) Something that will last forever. Whenever I preach the Bible to you, I'm giving you something that doesn't have an expiration date. It will work for all ages and all cultures. Martin Lloyd-Jones quipped, the Bible? Out of date? The Bible alone is up to date. Everything else is temporary. Now, before moving on to verse 25, I must say this about verse 24. Peter is quoting... Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 9. Peter loves to quote the Old Testament. Peter rewrites words that were written over 750 years before. And and what is happening in Isaiah 40 when these words were originally penned? Well, contextually, Isaiah 40 comes on the heels of a prophecy that said God's people would go into exile. Babylon will ruin them. In Isaiah, there's been 39 chapters of woe, sorrow, and terror. God's people are broken. In fact, the detailed prophecy nearly killed the prophet Hezekiah. It destroyed him. He eventually recovered. And then in chapter 40, it reads, comfort. Actually, two times. Comfort, comfort I bring. God's people were in need of comfort and Peter chose this portion of Isaiah to bring comfort to his own exilic community of Christians. Peter does not hesitate to redirect covenant language first addressed to Israel in exile and now to his first century Christian readers in Asia Minor. Peter fully recognizes that God's message to 6th century Israel stands as, God, as Christ's word to 1st century Christians. Isaiah said to God's Old Testament people, Babylon will be temporary. They will be like grass. It will seem like they are permanent, but only my word is permanent. Peter said to God's New Testament people with the same verses, the Roman Empire will be temporary. All that glitter, pomp, and power will die out. It seems like from every appearance they are permanent, but don't ever forget Only my word is permanent. This too shall pass, Peter says to discourage Christians. Let's play a game. See if you can finish this lyric. I know that scares you, especially the elders. Like, is he gonna, is he quoting a a rap song again? Um, Let's see if you can finish this lyric. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou has taught me to say, it is, yes, it is well, it is well with my soul. What I just did to you is what Peter did to his readers. He only quoted part of chapter 40, but that's all that was needed. They could finish the rest. Behold your God. The rest of the chapter speaks about the rescuing power of God. Hammer away, you hostile hands. Your hammers break. God's anvil stands. Verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You have, you have got to hear this because it's the philosophy behind our church. The activity of God's word brings life If you want to grow weeds, do nothing. If you want to grow fruit, plant seed. First, a healthy church finds ways to show love to one another. Secondly, a healthy church possesses a correct view of the Bible. Thirdly, a healthy church rids itself of certain behaviors. Verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Eugene Peterson paraphrased this verse. So clean house. Make a clean sweep of malice and pretense and envy and hurtful talk. The words here, put away, are actually a word picture. It was used of someone who takes off his soiled, dirty clothes and lays them aside. Peter gives you a list of things to tear off and leave on the ground behind you. Literally, it's rid yourself of these things. Rid yourself of, here's the list, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. You must rid yourselves of sins that destroy Christian community. One of the primary ways we show that Jesus has changed us is by putting away sins. Genuine faith brings a change in behavior. The sins that Peter names are not the gross vices of paganism, but rather community-destroying vices so often tolerated by the church. First, he says malice. Malice is a malicious term. It's what happens in your heart when you harbor bad blood, when you nurse the grudges, when someone says something to you that damages you deep down, that you feel attacks you at your core. Be careful not to develop malice toward that parent or that coworker or that spouse or that church member. Be gracious, not malicious. Malice, deceit. The word deceit encompasses everything from flat-out lying to crafty manipulation. Deceit is lying to to avoid a hard conversation. Well, Well, it caught me off guard and I didn't know what to say. No, you lied because lying is in your heart. Christians, rid yourself of deceit. When a Christian lies, that should be a big deal. If anyone claims to be a Christian but frequently lies, I think you need to question your salvation. Deceit is something you put off as a Christian. Now deceit is, is often also a lot minor in the sense that it's, it's also crafty trickery. Manipulating people. Oh, you may not lie outright, but you know what to say to get your way. That's civilized deceit. And you need to rid yourself of it. It's corrosive to your soul. Next on the list, hypocrisy. In antiquity, in Peter's day, there were actors and actresses who wore masks. The mask had an expression painted on it. It could be a frown or a smile, but the true feelings of the actors could be hidden behind the mask as they played a part on stage. That's the whole word picture behind the word hypocrisy. Don't wear a mask. Put off spiritual insincerity. Don't play act. One Greek scholar explained this word to refer to someone who meets you with a face which is different from their heart. Next, envy. Some of you are like, Kyle, I brought a friend today. Good, (laughs) good. Next, envy. Joseph Epstein wrote a book simply entitled Envy, published, published in 2003 by Oxford University Press. Joseph Epstein, not to be confused with Jeffrey Epstein that's been in the news. He was a wicked man. Joseph Epstein was a novelist. In the book, Joseph confessed that his childhood was filled with envy. He wrote, I envied boys with wealthier parents. I envied kids who were smarter, more popular than me. I envied boys who were more attractive to the girls. I envied guys who were better athletes, who seemed more at ease in the world. I was quick to detect friends with more freedoms, with more spending money, cooler parents. I lived in a faint cloud of envy. Are you living in a faint cloud of envy? Always measuring everyone up at work. Wishing you had that Instagram life. Wishing your kids behave like those kids. Wishing your husband help like that husband. Envy is deadly for your soul. Last on the list, slander. Now there's a high level slander and there's a low level slander. Uh, Doriani pointed out that in the Middle Ages, Europe had basically one church, but many reform movements. And when a reformer became too popular or powerful, church officials typically accused the reformer of financial corruption or unchastity in order to undermine the reformer's credibility. It's high-level slander. But the church often faces low-level slander. Disparaging talk. I want to make you look bad by making me look good. It's It's a whisper behind someone's back. Gossip and slander are perhaps the most acceptable sins in the church. Slander is incompatible with your new birth. Incompatible. In our old natural condition, the Bible says we were followers of Satan. And Satan's name means slanderer. The vocation of, of Satan is to slander Christ, to slander his church, and to slander his people. If you enjoy slander, your father may be the slanderer. Slander stunts your growth and harms the unity of the body. Only speak what builds up, not tearing down. Now, notice the word all in verse 3. In verse 1. It's repeated three times. All malice, all deceit, all slander. Paul wrote nearly the same command to believers in Ephesus with these words. Paul said, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Ephesians 4, 31. The Christian who is growing in holiness comes, and don't you know this to be true? The Christian who is growing in holiness comes to hate all the more the old, dirty, soiled clothing. First, a healthy church finds ways to show love to one another. Secondly, a healthy church possesses a correct view of the Bible. Thirdly, a healthy church rids itself of certain behaviors. Fourthly, a healthy church craves a biblical diet. Once again, verses 1 through 3 constitute one original sentence. Evidently, the ability to write long sentences was an apostolic gift and... (laughs) Peter mastered it. This entire sentence centers around one command, one verb. You'll find it in the middle of verse 2. It's the verb to long for. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Paul, whom I referenced earlier, was another writer in the first century, he used this same word seven times. Each time it indicated a strong, consuming desire, an incredible craving. The analogy that Peter uses for us is of a baby fresh out of the womb, a newborn infant. You could translate it, born just now baby. Just born now babies crave milk right away. And the sooner you can get them to latch on, the better. These babies desire milk several times a day. And Peter says, like infants desire human milk, you churches should desire spiritual milk. Babies desire milk produced out of a breast. You desire milk produced out of a Bible. Now let's talk about what Peter is not doing here. He's not criticizing these churches, calling them infants in the Lord. He's not saying they're all immature, that they're all babies. They were not. We've seen that talk in Scripture before, but that's not the point here. Secondly, Peter is not saying that they can only handle milk. There is a place in the Bible where the author speaks about churches that can only handle milk and not meat. But again, that's not the intention here. Peter is not intending to differentiate between entry-level Bible teaching and deep Bible teaching. He is describing the, nor is he describing the immature Peter is describing what all born-again people should possess. An intense craving for the Bible. At conversion, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God and are given a supernatural craving for the milk of the Word. The Bible is described as milk. There There are two adjectives to further describe this milk. Pure and spiritual. The ESV translators use those two words, pure and spiritual, to get across the meaning of one Greek word. This milk is pure. It's uncontaminated. It does not possess the properties to harm you. There are no imperfections or flaws with this milk. It isn't diluted or mixed with error. This word pure is commonly used in that day for, or was commonly used in that day for uh, corn, wheat, honey, And other milks. Consumers in antiquity were well aware that milk could be contaminated. The Bible is unadulterated, uncontaminated, spiritual milk. The text says, by this milk you grow up into salvation. Peter uses a passive verb, which is really important to understand. You're not making yourself grow up in the faith. The word of God is bringing about growth in your life. God's word will grow you. Your lack of growth is directly connected to your lack of study in the word. But how does a healthy church come about craving a biblical diet? How does a healthy church come about craving a biblical diet? Well, there are three ways. First, your palate needs to be disciplined for this milk. Your palate needs to be disciplined for this milk. You're feasting on some kind of milk right now. Your palate craves some type of contaminated milk. When I first stopped eating McDonald's my years ago, my palate would crave a Big Mac with the secret sauce. After a while of eating more nutritious foods, I randomly decided to taste a Big Mac again. After one bite, I had to quit. It was disgusting to me. My palate had changed. The gospel gives you new taste buds, and one of them is for the Bible. If you get up and start your morning with your phone instead of your Bible, you are poisoning your soul for the duration of the day. There's no way you can take all of that in and be healthy. Well, well, Kyle, I can't figure out why I have so much anxiety, I can't figure out why I'm so sluggish. Friend, I can you're consuming spiritual Big Macs all day long and it's messing with you by the way it it takes a while for you to go from sick to healthy you don't stop eating Big Macs and immediately never desire them again you have to overrule your palate until your palate can be trusted until your palate desires the right thing discipline your palate You you are responsible for developing an appetite for the Word. You control much of the craving you possess for spiritual nourishment. Possess a holy discontentment with your current palate. The more you read the Word, the more you will say, It tastes fantastic. It makes me want more. Your palate needs to be disciplined for this milk. Your mind needs to be trained how to eat this milk. Spiritual milk is not high on the world's list of dietary pleasures. Church, you know this. The world isn't going to help you on that journey. They aren't going to encourage you to eat this milk. They are not going to make time for you to eat this milk. They're not going to train you how to eat this milk. If you stop feeding on the word, you will stop growing. Just like a baby needs milk to grow, you need milk to grow. Here's a a recommended book for you. Nate Picklewitz, How to Eat Your Bible. My wife is reading it now, and one of our our middle boys, Stafford, picked it up and read the cover, and he was very confused. (laughs) Mom, is this a book about eating the Bible? That's weird. Why would you eat pages of the Bible? Well, it's not your belly eating, it's your mind eating the words. It's your soul eating the words. Your palate needs to be disciplined for this milk, your mind needs to be trained how to eat this milk, your heart needs to be convinced this milk is needed. Do you really even want this word? How long can you last without this word? We have lots of new parents in our church and uh, you're definitely obeying the command to be fruitful and multiply and I appreciate that. So do all of our children's workers. But some of you are in the newborn stage How does a newborn baby long for milk? How do they long for milk? Loudly. Obviously. Piercingly. Unrelentingly. You're not going to sleep until you give it to me, craving? Does the word craving describe your desire to study the Bible? You should desire God's word in this singular and relentless way. I am going to get this milk. It is so busy. My schedule is so packed. I am going to get this milk. The prophet Jeremiah cherished God's milk in a difficult time. I don't know how you go through difficulty without the milk. The prophet Jeremiah cherished God's milk in a difficult time. He said, Your words were found and I ate them. Your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. A believer's delight in God's word is a dominant theme in the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, by the way, he's rolling over in his grave at what the Methodist church has become today. Wesley's in heaven, so he he can't roll over in his grave, I guess, but um, he would not be able to recognize his own denomination anymore. Anyway, um, John Wesley said this of pure spiritual milk. God hath written a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me that book. Let me be a man Of one book. Can you finish this for me? An apple a day will keep the. That's an excellent Bible verse. It's it's not. Um, An apple a day will keep the doctor away. You've heard that. Milk throughout the day will help keep sin away. I know it's been ingrained in your psyche to only eat the word once a day. But eat it all throughout the day. There was an organization that surveyed 400,000 people. The organization, um, the name was Back to the Bible. And of these 400,000 people, those who read the Bible four plus days a week, so that's four days, five days, six days, seven days, those who read the Bible four plus days a week were 407%, 407% more likely to memorize scripture, 228% more likely to share their faith. Those who read the Bible were 59% less likely to view pornography, 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. There is something supernatural about this word that helps us mature in the faith. Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Would you you notice the first word in verse 3, if. This is not an if to sow doubt. The word if is a first class conditional participle which should be understood to mean if and since this is true. So, if and since this is true, and there's a play on words in the verse that I that I really like, uh, "good" in the Greek is "krestos," and "lord" in the Greek is "christos." Since you have tasted that the christos is krestos, since you have tasted that the lord is delicious. Of all the sensory metaphors. Tasting is the most intimate and the only one that involves ingestion. Seeing God, hearing God, even touching God does not carry the powerful connotations that tasting does. Again, not surprisingly, Peter is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 34. We sing a song based off of that psalm Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you tasted in the word of God that the Lord is good? Have you tasted? Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.